How is this going to work if they're really reducing the workforce this drastically? If they have outsiders coming in who are aggregating the code and firewalling around it, given the power and the size of Twitter, small mistakes can lead to catastrophic outcomes. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, November 7th, which means it's Media Monday with Puck's fearless leader, John Kelly. Today, John Kelly and I discuss why Twitter is in such dire straits now that Elon Musk has taken a wrecking ball to its workforce and spooked the very advertisers that they depend on for revenue. We also discuss the plunging revenue at media and entertainment companies everywhere and whether winter is coming for the content business. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode, The Powers That Be. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Happy Monday, everybody. It is the day before election day. Go vote if you haven't already. I'm joined as I am every Monday by my boss man here at Puck, John Kelly. John, guess what? Happy 200th birthday, Peter. That's right. That's right. Uh, This is the 200th episode of The Powers That Be. Feels pretty good. Do you like the podcast, John? Can you give me some live feedback? Yeah, Peter, you're um, you're as you're as naturally charming on the show as you are in real life. <laughs> you're always a quick-witted guy, and if I've observed anything with delight, it's that you're equally excited to talk about business and media and, and technology as you are politics. Well, thank you for flattering me. That's very nice. I won't say who this came from, but I did get a very insidery DC text right before coming on that said, "I'm really enjoying Puck, and not just because you told me to sign up. It's great." from senior unnamed person in Washington. All I know, and it's just a guess, is that that's not from Ron Klain. But um, <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> no, it's not. That would be a good guess. Anyway, John, hey, I want to talk to you about Elon Musk and Twitter. He took control of the company a little over a week ago. It feels like Twitter is really confronting some serious challenges all of a sudden. Many of them, most of them are self-inflicted, but some of them, in my mind, are revealing themselves, some things that were a problem before Elon Musk even took over. But the biggest thing that's happening right now is advertisers are pulling back. Twitter is 90%, I think, like an advertising revenue business. Even though Elon Musk and his deputies food in New York to assuage advertisers, they are pulling some money out of the company. Elon Musk said he's going to lay off half of the employees. And then Elon Musk tweeted on Friday, Twitter has had a massive drop in revenue due to activist groups pressuring advertisers, even though nothing has changed with content moderation. And we did everything we could to appease the activists. Extremely messed up. They're trying to destroy free speech in America. This is a very Trumpy thing to say in my mind. One, by the way, if you're a private company, guess what you don't have to do anymore? Tell people how much money you're making. So, okay, massive drop in revenue. You're scaring people off there. And then blaming Everyone else, yeah, like I think a lot of people on the left and a lot of Elon Musk critics jumped the gun on claiming that he had already changed a bunch of content policies and he like allowed Kanye West back on, he's going to allow Trump on. Like 
a lot of the content moderation, a lot of products haven't actually changed. The one thing that's changed is Elon Musk coming in and one, tweeting out conspiracy theories. And on top of that, like laying a shitload of people off. So it's like the reason advertisers are fleeing feels entirely self-inflicted. It's self-inflicted, but it's also like historically self-inflicted. I remember the great reporting that Nick Bilton did on the early days of this company. You have to remember the psychosis of Twitter that we see now, it really is baked in to the DNA of the company in a lot of fundamental ways. We talk about Twitter as being Jack Dorsey's company, but you got to remember it was actually Ed Williams' company. He was the one who put the initial amount of money in when it was Odeo, when it was this kind of audio blogging platform. There were four co-founders that all cycled in and out of leadership. The cap table got really screwy. I think Spark got involved early and there were huge boardroom fights and, and machinations, you know, CEO transitions. Long story short, Twitter was something that everyone wanted to be involved in for a number of years. And then no one wanted to be involved in afterwards. At a certain point, when Jack orchestrated the coup to get rid of Ev, Ev stepped aside, started Medium, and became a, a, a sort of internet philosopher. And then Dorsey himself no longer wanted to be involved. And this is a company that really hasn't had a CEO in a decade. And, and I'm not in any way disparaging the people who work there. Um, Twitter is a huge part of our lives. But it was a leaderless company. So I'm sure that among the employees who work there, there has to be some sort of management challenge that is reckoned with. Parag Agrawal was not the CEO very long before this must take over. So it's a long way of saying Twitter was crazy before Elon Musk like got on the block, you know, and, and we have to remember that. And, and it was an incredibly poorly run company for a long time. And it was probably a company that should have gone private a long time ago. Um, what's happened in the last week is obviously crazy. I mean, antics aside, um, this sort of mass firing is, is appalling that the fact that you have what seems like that some of the Tesla technology team coming in to help. Now, obviously, Twitter is a private company. They can do what they want. But if you're a Tesla shareholder, I'm sure that you would like to know um, why employees of the company that you have your money in are helping out the CEO's side project. The blue check stuff has gotten a lot of attention. I don't want to say the most attention, but but you know how, how people are going to use it in the content moderation. To me, that's a second order of magnitude question, or it's a derivative question. Like, how is this going to work? If they're really reducing the workforce this drastically, if they have outsiders coming in who are kind of aggregating the code and, and firewalling around it, given the power and the size of Twitter, small mistakes can lead to catastrophic outcomes in a lot of ways. And I'm not even just talking about monetization. I'm talking about just general governance and, and management of the company. They're changing so much in such a short time. And we know from the news cycle we lived through for four years, what happens when someone expresses something on Twitter, when someone's been hacked on Twitter, when there's an outage on Twitter. Twitter may be a private company now, but it is sort of part of the cultural public trust in a lot of ways. And this hastened like Usain Bolt type of uh, transformation, which he's enacting because he needs to cut costs because there is great fear that Twitter doesn't make enough money or doesn't throw off enough EBITDA to service its debts, that he could really fuck up in the process and that there could be a significant amount of collateral damage. I feel like I'm the founder and CEO of the Twitter isn't real life crowd. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, wrote you are. This for, yes, you are. I wrote about this for the Shorenstein Center at Harvard in 2013. Twitter is just more fragile than people think it is. The fragility of the business has been exposed by all this in terms of advertising. And I was tweeting with, uh, speaking of, I was tweeting at, Derek Thompson on, on Twitter. Smart guy. I was tweeting on Twitter with Derek Thompson, which is a very <laughs> yeah. media Twitter thing to do. He was uh, talking about this very issue that, you know, this is revealing how dependent Twitter is on advertisers. And, and in some cases, Snapchat, where I am, um, Meta, YouTube, I mean, all these places are seeing downturns in terms of advertising revenue and their overall value. 
But I replied to him and I was like, if you look at the ad products on Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, those are like ad experiences that can be rather compelling for a user and where you want to engage with it. At Snapchat, like one of our first big ads we ever did was one of these like filters where you could like during the Super Bowl dump Gatorade on your face while looking in the selfie camera. And like that was a big ad for Gatorade. It had a ton of impressions on Instagram. As all of you listening know, like they're really good at targeting and we've all purchased something off Instagram that we saw like, oh, those shirts look cool. I want to buy a shirt. I saw it on Instagram. Twitter doesn't have compelling ad products. So on top of the fact that like General Motors is pausing advertising on Twitter, my thought is, what is a General Motors ad on Twitter? I've never clicked on a Twitter ad. I just don't understand how Twitter has made a substantial amount of money off of like ad products that are basically just ads that show up in your feed for like Oreos. Like who is that for? And so it's not just that Twitter is dependent on advertising. Their advertising business depends on an ad product that is pretty frail and weak, in my opinion. And all of these, like, if these things go haywire one way or the other, like, I don't know, Twitter could just shut down for a few days or weeks or maybe forever. I mean, this is just like driven into a ditch. Why is the advertising business so small? Yeah, I don't, I don't see a lot of ads on Twitter either. I think a lot of advertisers don't view it as a purchasing space the way that moms use Facebook to buy consumer packaged goods. Instagram has become really a high-end novelty marketplace for your Allbirds or your, um, you know, your, your, your new like hemp-based liquor product um, and <laughs> or whatever, <laughs> or, or for guys like us, probably know just like <laughs> endless, uh, endless Vori shorts, you know. Um, I'm wearing Vori shorts right now. Love the okay. brand. Celebrate yeah. them. <laughs> <laughs> I will read your ad copy, Vori. <laughs> but I think Twitter, um, it, it's newsier. It's not as much of a um, in-app purchase experience. And also, as we know from, from Elon Musk's own like kind of convulsions, so much of the platform is filled with bots. It's just smaller. It is materially smaller than it's reported to be in, in any sort of MAU. So it's not a great ad business to start with. And obviously the decision to try and turn users into a revenue line, which is basically what uh, the blue checks are going to be to go from you know, being free participants to people paying about $100 a year, shows you that they're looking to fill that hole pretty quickly. The blue check thing to me is obviously a disaster for the content moderation world for disinformation. I mean, any dermatologist who pretends to be a COVID expert will pay for that blue check mark and be able to masquerade as someone serious on the internet. And the blue check mark system has its issues. I mean, like they were given out willy nilly. Everyone thinks that they should get one because they're journalists. At the same time, like that kind of curation, handpicking expertise and giving out those blue check marks and handpicking fame and influence, like that stuff is important. I mean, you should have a human touch on deciding who gets a blue check mark. And like anyone can get these things. Like we just, we vastly underestimate media and information literacy in the country and in the world. And, you know, a lot of people see a blue check, even if they don't automatically think it confers authority. They're just more willing to look at it. I may be less persuaded than you are that blue checks were as powerful as um, as we think them to be, as, as we in the sort of blue check circle. I think that there, there was terrible information on Twitter that was pervasive um, without a blue check and there'll be terrible information. And, and some was provided by people with blue checks. I have to think that financially, Elon Musk is motivated to make Twitter a place that people want to have these conversations one way or, or, or another. And um, I don't know if, if content moderation is going to be the term they use for it. I don't think people's streams or their, their own personal channels of who they 
you know, who they follow, who they listen to um, will, will change very much based on who's, who's got a blue check and, and, um, and, who, and who isn't. But we truly have no idea how this is going to play out. Um, but I, I think all, all we can assume is that there is a real profit motive here. I think in six or nine months, the Fed is going to make the banks that issued the debt, well, the loans to Elon Musk, begin to move it off their balance sheets. And they're going to have to sell it. And they're selling it at 50 or 60 cents on the dollar. The people who are going to buy that debt are um, are some bad dudes. And um, there, there's a scenario in which uh, the banks could own this thing one day. And, and he's, you know, I have to assume that he's very motivated to make sure that doesn't happen. All right, John, when we come back, I want to talk about some of the forces we're talking about right now, advertising revenue being one of them, and how it's about to affect the broader media landscape. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, John, we were texting before the show about what we want to talk about. You said how it's about to be winter for media companies. What did you mean by that? Well, Peter, I now, I now realize that... Um, this is not the candle we want to blow out on our uh, 200th birthday cake here, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best to try and put uh, some rose-tinted glasses on this one. Our partner, Matt Bellamy, summed this up brilliantly in his uh, piece in, in what I'm hearing on, on Thursday evening. We are in the midst of a brutal earnings season. I mean, we, you know, when you have companies like Amazon saying that they're no longer hiring, you know, Netflix has corrected itself, but it, it sort of was the harbinger of this media correction when it declared its first loss in, in the second quarter. But Fox is down 20%. Disney stock is down 37% from its high. Comcast is down close to half. Paramount announced that its subs number was up. I mean, the Paramount plus subs business is um, 
shockingly successful. I'm sure maybe that Godfather spinoff is part of it. Maybe it's um, maybe the football package is is a piece of it. It's in the you know the mid forty millions. Um, we'll see what the ARPU looks like on that. But they're they're going to buy the cricket rights that um, that Disney walked away from. So that number's going to keep going. But nevertheless, even with an increase, that the stock is down. And then Netflix, even with its bump, is still about fifty percent of where it was during the high. And it all comes back to Zaz with us uh, here at Puck and. And Warner Brothers Discovery, you know, continues um, to sort of adjust its guidance in in real time. And so Zaz announced last week that the synergies that, you know, he had declared would be around three billion or closer to three and a half billion. Dylan reported on Friday that Chris Licht has around a hundred million dollar number that he's got to cut from CNN. Elon, uh, you mentioned in the previous segment, has this thirteen billion dollar debt from his banks and I think seven or eight from his buddies. Zaslav has $50 billion that he's got to pay down. And so we're in this environment where there's just constant cutting. And this is balance sheet maintenance. And it is very hard to innovate and invest when you are constantly trimming and, and when visual CEOs are being given numbers that they have to meet. And, and a lot of this is because of the, the rising cost of money. We lived in an economy where uh, money was very cheap for a long time. So this affects not just traditional central banks, but also private equity, which is a maybe six or seven trillion dollar industry at this point. And it relies on um, inexpensive uh, debt to lever up companies and then figure out exit options. So it's rough sledding out there, man. It, it is brutal. And I, I think that uh, it is hitting media hard. And what's interesting to me, without being too provocative, is how much of this is corrective, meaning we'll muddle through it and, and the picture will look different in 18 months. And how much of it is just a suggestion of changes to come, meaning that a, a lot of entertainment media is going to kind of follow a path of publishing or, or music decades earlier where there's further consolidation. And the overall industry is a little bit smaller among fewer players as the real opportunities shift to gaming and the metaverse and whatever else is is next. Um, if I knew the answer, obviously I would have bought Twitter, but um, <laughs> but it, it, it seems like we're, we're getting some clues now. With the plunging value of all these entertainment companies and media companies, how much of this is the great reckoning that we've been talking about for like 10, 15, 20 years now where attention and eyeballs are no longer in movie theaters and they're not for following around like whatever's on linear cable programming and they're moving to streaming and individual creators on the internet and social media are creating their own stuff that's pulling eyeballs away and there's cord cutters. So there's that, like the big bang theory of media is happening right now, or is it just a slumping economy? It's a little bit of both, but I think also to your previous point, there was a mythology that was um, articulated by, by sort of new media wannabe barons, people like the Shane Smiths of the world, that there was a binary change. You were going from one analog world to a new digital world. And it turned out that it's much more complicated, not to sound like Marxian, but like it's a dialectic. You go back and forth a lot. I think if Zaz has shown anything in his career, and particularly in what he's trying to do with Warner Brothers Discovery, you want to hold on to the revenue that you can while investing in the future, but doing so in a way that doesn't totally cut off your nose to, to spite your face, which was sort of the, the, the Jason Kalar strategy to just move everything to the future, um, which you know actually ignores some real-time revenue. It's not simple. It's a total choreography that has to be timed perfectly. And there are just more players in this space. The biggest difference between now and, and two or three years ago is that everyone is a streamer. And it turns out that as everyone's become a streamer, air quotes, Wall Street, meaning the banks and the financial analysts that cover these companies at the banks have gotten more sophisticated about what's important to be a streamer. So 
when Netflix was on its meteoric rise, what mattered significantly was that top line revenue number. And we saw this in other businesses too, like the New York Times in its, in its earnings calls would constantly talk about the top line subscriber number. Now these analysts are increasingly focused as you would expect, especially in a, in a headwind filled macroeconomic environment on the average revenue per user. How much money are you really bringing in? If you have 50 million subscribers, but like 12 million of them are paying 40 bucks a year, mainly for Indian Premier League cricket, how valuable are they? Not as valuable. And so the market's gotten a lot more sophisticated. The market's gotten terrible. Um, and the, the sugar high of the um, stimulus package has gone away. And there probably are a lot of companies out there that are trying to tell a story about being something that frankly, they just are plainly not. And this is the moment when that gets revealed. Wow. You really learned a lot at your TPG years. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I feel like, I, feel like I, see, I see tears coming out of your eyes. You're like checking your fidelity. Uh, no, this is a good podcast because I feel like I learned things from you and we balance each other out. Well, you complete me, Peter. <laughs> All right, John, enjoy election day. It's going to be a busy week for us here at Puck.News and excited to, you know, when the results come in, break it down with all of our smart people on staff here. We have some good podcasts planned this week around the election. Yeah. Can you give us one prediction before we uh, before we get out of here? Oh, my gosh. Um, the, only, the only caveat is it has to be exactly right. It has to be exactly right. I don't want to make any predictions about Election Day because Nate Cohn in the New York Times said that respondents to polls are lower than they've ever been for the New York Times polls. And white registered Democrats are like 28% more likely to respond to a poll than anyone else. And so like the notion that you know, there's a shy Trump voter and shy Republicans embedded in these polls uh, that, you know, that they're not responding to polls, you know, that should favor Republicans on election day. Um, but we shall see. Yeah, we've seen um, how persuasive the, especially the sort of McConnell Senate leadership fund uh, strategy has been just pumping money in the last minute into these races and, and how these, all these races that we thought were over have tightened. It's going to be wild. All right, man. See ya. All right, buddy. I'll talk to you later. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 